Hello, my name's Adam Spring, and this is a remotely interested podcast hosted at remotely-interested.com for some and remotely-interested for others. Anyway, Ravi, how are you doing today? I'm excellent, and I hear you have a really interesting interview for this month's episode. I do. So I have to admit, I and I mean this without ego, I amazed myself with this one in the sense that we have one of the two original founding members of Pixar, its former CTO, and also after acquisition by Disney, president for Disney Animation Studios and Pixar Animation Studios, and that was a bit of a mouthful, Ed Catmull. It's absolutely crazy that you've got Ed on, because I, I, I've just been listening to the interview and you guys are going to be able to hear it in a minute. And just the stuff he's covered is fascinating. You know, when this podcast started, it was kind of about looking at the history of stuff, looking at the technology and getting a bit geeky. And in this one, you know, Ed gets really geeky. You can tell his passion about it as well, because he's actually excited and uh, he's laughing, talking about some of the memories. You know, it's really nice. Well, you, it's interesting you should say that because this was just going to be a one-off podcast, but he gave me so much of his time that this is actually going to be a two-parter. So what we've got in part one, we touch on Pixar a little bit, but I literally could have talked to him for the entire time that I had his time and not talked about Pixar at all because this guy has just done so much in his life and in another way is just so humble when you consider that it's no exaggeration to say that he is part of the fabric of the 20th and early 21st century. You know, the world would be different if people like Ed Catmull wasn't Yeah, And my mind was just blown. This guy, you could do like 20 hour interviews with him and you still wouldn't get everything. (laughs) It was funny because basically he was throwing out all these names and obviously a lot of them I knew and some of them I didn't. And then I looked them up and I'm like, oh, okay. So this is basically somebody that invented Photoshop. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? It was that kind of interview. Yeah. And, you know, um, with this podcast as well, if you guys can share it, let people know about it. You know, we're currently just started season two. So we're kind of on the promotion train. And the first thing to get sorted was the search. So we're a lot more discoverable now. Um, We're number one in the search term, remotely interested. We're also on so many services now. It just keeps growing. We're on Stitcher, Player FM, SoundCloud, Podtail, Listen Notes, Facebook, YouTube channel as well. We're now uploading to there. So you may get some video reports of events that we've been going to as well. Yep, you never know what's going on and there's a lot going on. Yeah, so we'll also be doing a few guest appearances on uh, other podcasts. Also the Retro Hour, which is my um, kind of gaming technology podcast that I do with Dan Wood. We're going to pop onto there. And, uh, you know, we're really going to get this one flowing because I just absolutely love the content. And with people like Ed, it's just going from strength to strength. So let's just talk about what Ed's done then. So Ed's story is a really interesting one. So I've actually finished reading his book, Creativity Inc., which I fully recommend for anybody to read, whether you're interested in business management culture, which is part of what it's about, but also just technology. I mean, there's bits about his history in there. There's bits about how they developed a culture at Pixar, but also as well, I think it just shows that organically, he's just somebody that really likes helping people. And talking about his career, he's not somebody that everything was calculated from a a very self-orientated point of view. It's from what he describes his passion for exploring the frontier. So at the University of Utah, his mentors, one of them was basically the grandfather of AR and VR. He created the first VR headset called the Sword of Damocles. And uh, from there, he then basically got headhunted for a research institute in New York, which ended up doing a film called Tubby the Tuba, which I had seen and that did surprise him. And then from there, he was headhunted by George Lucas after Star Wars to uh, head up his computing initiatives at Lucas Arts. And then essentially from there, Pixar was formed internally as first a computing company. And then obviously the studio that we know and love now came about when they started working on a film with Disney. So it's a very organic interview, but also the story of somebody that have, that has done great things and met great people and built relationships with them organically. Awesome. Well, let's hear from the man himself. Well, I was very fortunate, uh, and, and I didn't know about this or even put it in context until later, because of course I was a young kid. Um, I was born just before World War II ended, so I wasn't even a baby boomer. <laughs> 
but only by a few months. So I grew up in a neighborhood where there were a, a lot, almost all young families. And uh, so this was in Utah, uh, in Salt Lake City uh, during the 50s. So it was a very safe time. What I didn't fully under, understand at the time, but looking back, I can understand why, but all of our parents had gone through the Great Depression and World War II. And what I had to get my head around thinking about this years later was, it wasn't like these are these old people that had all these experiences. These were all young parents who had grown up with this. And so with this big thing behind them, there was this uh, feeling that I grew up with of optimism and safety. Uh, and I was, of course, you know, in, in this period, enthralled by the television, which was being new or which was new at the time. There were, there were programs about Bell Labs and about science. Disneyland was brand new. There was the wonderful world of Disney. Uh, I was impacted by the movies that I saw, uh, two in particular, uh, Pinocchio and Peter Pan. Um, and uh, they really, they played in my mind. In fact, I realized years later that I made up things that I thought was in the movie. But I realized, having experienced that, that that's one of the cool things about uh, kids when they see films. And if you can excite their imagination, they do go off and they make stuff up, which is good. So I spent a lot of time drawing classes and so forth, uh, uh, TV classes, um, and, and got books. But at the same time, this was, uh, you know, again, you had the, um, the, the, what does I forget, who was the sponsor of the TV program. I just watched it all the time about science. And Einstein at that time, even though his work had, had taken place, this is near the end of his life. And uh, he was this iconic figure, still is the iconic figure of science. So those were the two things I grew up with in a safe environment, which was encouraging people to expand their way of thinking. And, and at the same time, we had the Cold War. So we had an existential threat going on. But I also spent uh, time trying to learn Russian in the sense that, okay, if these are the, uh, the enemies, what, what are they like? What's their language? So... You know, I learned the alphabet. And then when I went to college, I spent two years learning Russian. And it, it's really interesting because one of the things that um, comes out of your book, Creativity Inc., and also, you know, other stuff as somebody that's very interested in 3D imaging in my professional life, is just how much of an impact Sputnik had on really the development of computer graphics in the post-war period because of the development of ARPA and DARPA. I was wondering if you might want to give your perspective on that at all. Uh, yes. Now, in the case of Sputnik, it was one of those kind of events where uh, people who were at there at that period, they remember where they were when they heard about it, because it was rather uh, uh, engrossing to hear this, especially in a time of this threat of nuclear war and so forth. And the U.S. reacted in a number of ways. And it, it's a, what, I, what I did recently, since I grew up with uh, ARPA, I thought, well, you know, I should go back and read, and I just did this. I read the history of ARPA, the, the part that had to do with uh, information uh, support, and also with the history of Bell Labs. It's a great combination. It was, yeah, it was awesome. And I, I don't think I even fully understood it. I, I appreciated the fact that I had landed in this magical place where the government was funding the development of uh, computer graphics at Utah, and it was an amazing opportunity. I knew, and I knew it at the time. Um, I didn't completely appreciate until years later that what it took to get ARPA going, because to some extent it wasn't that the U.S. government decided to do it. There were individuals who thought this was extremely important, and at that time the military, different sections, you know, the Army, the Navy, and so forth, were not cooperating terribly well together, and to a large extent. ARPA kind of came in the cracks. Since they couldn't get the big guys to fully back this, and the people who really wanted it sort of fit in there. And then when it had an impact, it obviously, you know, had the impact. But it wasn't because uh, everybody understood what it was going towards. And at that time, computers were uh, very 
different from each other, and they were very hard to use. So uh, the, the impetus behind computer graphics was there must be some graphical way. Uh, and so that was why it was one of the first things that was funded. Then the second thing, which I didn't know until afterwards, was that Utah was one of the first four nodes on the ARPANET. And, uh, and, and the logic behind that was not so much that they were building the precursor to the, what we now call the Internet, but they just wanted the researchers to be able to talk with each other, and they couldn't convince everybody to go onto one platform, which is, I think, a better thing anyway, better outcome. So that was the logic behind it. And over time, of course, uh, the funding from ARPA spread out to other universities. And so the result of that jolt of fear coming from Sputnik caused various forces to uh, come together who were determined to make these advances in spite of internal obstacles as well as, as, well as external threats. And the other thing which was very impressive is the leadership that they had, starting back from uh, the advisor to uh, uh, Roosevelt during the war, his name has just slipped my mind. Uh, they had a succession of leaders who understood the importance of it. They had a vision. They didn't have a lot of bureaucracies which got in the way of the research. Uh, and I thought it was rather enlightened, and it's not the normal response. And that's what makes it fascinating. There are a lot of places where one could do something like that, but this was the example of somebody having the, the guts and the leadership and a long-term view to do something which had a profound effect even though they didn't know what it was going to be, just that it was important. And I think the other impressive thing is just the amount of applied research that came out of that for like the next 50 years. It wasn't just like a short period of time. In a way, it's still going on now. You know, if you look at things like the Grand Challenge and self-driving cars. Well, you know, if you, if you think about that, and, it, it, and I realized this because I was originally in physics and I, I grew up wanting to be at the frontier. You know, it's on the, I wanted to be able to tell stories with, animation and be involved with that at the same time I wanted to be somewhere out on the frontier. So when I graduated with uh, uh, I had two degrees of physics and computer science, what I realized right at the end was that to get to the frontier in physics was going to be a long slog, whereas with computer science, you were at the frontier. And, and now coming today, which is what you just stated, is that here we are 50 years later, we're still at the frontier line. Yep. It's really amazing. I mean, how many fields are that where you're continually at the frontier because the underlying uh, technology is changing so fast that so many things are enabled that you're in a continual mode of discovery. And really, it kind of ties into naturally, which is quite nice. The next point that I wanted to discuss, two figures that I find incredibly interesting, and that's Ivan Sutherland and David C. Evans. And just in terms of what they were able to do at the University of Utah, because really how I came to know about you was actually through um, books like What the Dormouse Said and Droid Maker as well, I think was another one. And I thought What the Dormouse Said really encapsulated just how the computing department when you were there at the University of Utah it was just this golden age. And it seemed to me that Ivan Sutherland and... David C. Evans was really at the core of that. I was wondering if you might be able to talk about those two figures. Before I first graduated from my undergraduate degree, there were a couple of people there and I was aware of them, and one, of course, being Alan Kay. And then I was gone for one year while I was working at Boeing. Uh, and, and that year, uh, blank, you got it, went off and ran Xerox Park. He was at Utah for that one year. So a lot of the major figures in ARPA actually passed through Utah. So there I was, and, and uh, uh, Warnock was there, and Jim Clark came a year after I did, and uh, Alan Kay, and it was just a, a magical group, and it was exciting, and I knew it at the time that this was very cool. Now, Dave Evans and Ivan had um, started their company, and Dave was the CEO of the company. He was the chairman of the department, but to my knowledge, he actually wasn't teaching classes. So what he was doing was he was the protector of the environment. Uh, he was the I guess he was the principal uh, investigator for ARPA, although I used for one year went off and he was running <laughs> that group in ARPA. So here are these two powerful figures. Ivan was teaching classes and continuing to do research both at the university and for the company that formed ENS. And what I, I recognized at the time was that we were given a great deal of freedom. A lot of our education came from each other, spurring each other on. 
And Ivan was the kind that encouraged people to push on the edge. He was stunningly smart, intimidatingly smart, but he didn't tell people what to do. He would just encourage or push in different edges. Uh, he, he'd come up with difficult problems for people to think about in his classes. When it was very clear. The reason was to get people to think. It wasn't like I'm trying to teach you a topic and I'm trying to teach you to think, but they didn't micromanage anybody. And, and to be honest, later I saw how other universities, even great universities, work with their graduate students. And it was more like the graduate students were working on projects with their advisors. Whereas at Utah, it's like we were supposed to, if we're getting a PhD, we have to show that we can figure things out and run them and make them happen, which I thought was a great way of working. And I also know at the time that, that there was another group, another uh, organization called uh, SIDS, the Society for Information Display. And uh, I remember being at a conference once and somebody saying something derogatory about the work on graphics at Utah as not being realistic. And it was just in a, on a conference floor and I heard somebody say that. And I remember thinking at the time, oh, they have no idea what's coming. So here was this actually amazing environment. Uh, plus they had uh, two other things going on. One of them was a lot of work was being put into developing the way you model surfaces. So it's the mathematics of surfaces. So they brought in uh, Rich Riesenfeld, who was with, uh, worked with uh, NURBS. I think for one year they had in uh, uh, Stephen Coons. He was actually later on my PhD committee. Uh, so he was one of the founders of the whole field of uh, the math of surfaces. So there were conferences and we lot of, met a lot of people that came through to talk about. So that was exciting. My own work was to figure out how to display curved surfaces, which until that time they weren't be able to do except for uh, quadric surfaces, which weren't all that useful. Everything was polygonal. So that became my research topic was the display of these surfaces. Um, and the other one, which was great for that environment, was they had Tom Stockton who was doing image processing. Now, from then on, typically image processing as a special field was not co-located with groups that were doing computer graphics. But at Utah, at the beginning, they were. All the computer graphics people took Tom Stockton's class, and he was an awesome teacher. So that was part of this mix of really great things going on. Plus, in the middle of this area for uh, computer science, there was a photo lab. And it's the sort of thing you might think, well, they'd have a, they might have a photo lab, but it would be off to the side. But the making of the images and uh, was right there at the center. And, and that's unusual. It's not the sort of thing that people <laughs> have done since then. It sounds as though there was a huge peer-to-peer -peer element uh, as well, which it seems as though that you've replicated and been influenced by throughout your career, which is really interesting. Yes. I, knowing that this was special, that when I left, my original impulse was to replicate it. Now, the, the truth is I couldn't completely replicate it, I mean, not that I tried to completely replicate it, but being in a research lab, which I, I ran after I, I, uh, I graduated, was not the same thing as being a, uh, a graduate school where people sort of flow through it. But the principle of the peer-to-peer, -peer, of not micromanaging and trusting people to address the, the important problems, figure them out on their own, really bore a lot of fruit. And do you think that's what made the department unique? Well, I wasn't at other ARPA places. So I don't know how they were. I mean, if, if you look at it, of course, the entire foundations for the industry were built during that period of time across all these universities. And each one had their area of specialty. So people were working on computer languages and compilers and different computers and different architectures. And so what, what we really saw was a field develop. And initially, there was an annual conference for the, the whole field, the ACM conference. And then they had uh, special interest groups, which are called the SIGs, and they had one for each of the sub-discipline of computer science at the time. So it could be programming languages and so forth. So SIGGRAPH came out of that era, and its conference started fairly early on. And the first two were really small, and they were allied with the medical conference for the first two years. And it wasn't significant, and I didn't even go to one until the third one, which was in Pennsylvania, uh, Philadelphia. And uh, it was that one where the leaders of the conference tried something new, which is a combination of a 
trade show. It was uh, having an educational program uh, and the papers and an art show and a format. And that format held up for until today. It's modified a little bit. But basically, uh, it really kickstarted SIGGRAPH as a major place to be. And I remember being at that very first one and Jim Blinn was there and it was very exciting. We've kind of touched upon this, but why do you think, you know, just that late 70s, uh, late 60s, sorry, early 70s period, just so much talent came out of the department at Utah? Well, I, uh, uh, I, I think it's a combination of uh, factors. And whenever these factors happen, and they've happened in other places, then uh, it enables the magic. So one of them is, there is a there's some outside entity or place or force which decides this is important. So they're going to fund it. So that's what you had with uh, Bell Labs. It's what you had with uh, Park, uh, and it's what you had with ARPA. Um, and then there was a uh, an understood mission uh, for each of those. And and in our case, well, in in, Ar- in ARPA general, it was the development of the computers and making them more accessible and practical and just addressing a whole number of issues. But they knew they were doing that. It was big enough that they could give different schools a uh, certain umbrella uh, uh, goals or missions. So in the case of Utah, it was, it had to do with imagery as the biggest mission. And the second one was there were, there were people there for the, this new idea of connecting the computers together and there was a you know one of the graduate students was Barry Wessler uh, and everybody had this shared mission of having the uh, the computers talk with each other but the so that was the second thing is what's our mission and it is articulated just as in the case of Xerox Park was to make the office of the future and at Bell Labs it was have it so that people could talk to each other anywhere across the nature of the nation and there's a, a clarity in that global overview and the next component was that essentially had gifted leaders who could let people do their work. They could uh, provide the guidance and the protection. So in our case, it was Dave and Ivan. But in the case of ARP itself, there was a succession of people who thought deeply about what kind of environments they wanted to create, and then they made it happen. And the last component was the effort to make sure that they had and enabled the smartest people they could, and that they also allowed and encouraged idiosyncratic people and people sort of like at the edges. So I look at those like four components, and if you if you take out one of them, then it's it's far less likely to happen. Now there are other great research labs that that have taken place, and obviously IBM has a long history of doing some fundamental research. Uh, there are a lot of companies who could do research, but they choose to put all their energy in products, for instance, not in research. So they might excel in other ways. In the case of computer science, for a long time, the companies were cooperating with the school. That whole system broke down, uh, to be honest, when Dell Computer came out. Dell was focused entirely on cost, and they were writing the benefits from this, but they gave nothing back into the system. Uh, so they altered the dynamic. And I remember the time being pissed. I thought, oh, this is the one company that get all these benefits and uh, they're not actually giving anything back. But the, in, in general, the companies, because they're public companies and their job is to make money, they don't take a long-term view. It's, as you know, that's the norm. So having those components together is frankly hard. And that's why Xerox Park is interesting because regardless of the, the, the fact that Xerox didn't get as much benefit out of their research lab as they could have. The fact is they funded it. They had a mission, a clear mission. They had a leader who stayed with it to make it happen. And they brought in some exceptionally smart and idiosyncratic people. And those are the components necessary to make something important happen. And that's what we have. And that's what ARPA was doing. ARPA actually went downhill for a while and then then they came back, so they started to do things like the Grand Challenge and so forth. That was more like the ARPA that I knew. And before we move on to your hand, 
and our future world. One question that I've really wanted to ask you is you mentioned Alan Kay earlier. Did you and him ever discuss, and you know, this kind of ties in with the Xerox Park link as well, which is why I bring it up. Did you ever discuss him being at the mother of all demos and what that was like? Uh, no, uh, I didn't talk about that with him. I've talked with him many times, but I never talked about that one. We actually talked last year. Uh, last year at SIGGRAPH was the 50th anniversary of the um, invention of AR and VR by Ivan Selden and his colleagues. The Sword of Damocles, yep. And uh, the, uh, which we had at Utah, and, they, and they brought, they, he brought it with him. Because right at the time of SIGGRAPH, I never missed SIGGRAPH, but I missed it last year because my wife and I were having our 35th anniversary, but we had a, a renewal ceremony in Hawaii. Oh, very nice. So I connected by, by telephone into the conference, and Alan Kay was by telephone, and so was John Warnock. So while we're having this set up before and after, we're in these, and I guess there's there some breakfast. So John and Alan and I were just talking about old times. So we just had this really nice discussion last year. Ivan also wrote me a note afterwards, because I, I mentioned that I found him intimidating when I was a graduate student. And he wrote and said, like, I hope you don't think, you still think I'm intimidating. <laughs> That's awesome. It seem, he seems to have a very dry sense of humor from the videos that I've seen. So let's talk a little bit then about, so your thesis was modeling your hand and that ended up being in a film called Future World, which was the sequel um, to Westworld. And I was wondering if you could talk about that because it's kind of your entry point in a way to what, what you did at Pixar really, isn't it? Yes. Um, there, there, there are a couple of interesting things there. One of them is it actually was not my thesis. It was a class project in my first year of graduate school. And the hand itself was made from uh, polygons, but my thesis and, uh, and my, or my dissertation topic uh, grew out of that in that polygons actually are, it, it, it's difficult to, to uh, show anything that's reasonable made up of the polygons, especially the size they were at the time. Um, there was no known way of displaying curved surfaces there was this brand new way of, this, of representing the surfaces with four-sided patches. But having made that hand as a class project, I was also aware that having four-sided patches with four edges coming together at the corners, at the junction between the patches, was topologically a very awkward way of representing something uh, like a hand. In fact, it's even awkward for something like representing a, a sphere or a, a cube. That is, a cube actually has got four-sided faces, but it's three edges coming together. So I knew there were problems, and, and so that was the environment in which I was working, was how do we go from polygons to displaying curved surfaces and representing them? And my dissertation was the display of them. Once we had a mathematical representation of a displayable surface, then out of that would follow this idea of texture mapping, which is we can now do for the first time. Um, and since I didn't like the particular mathematical representations of services, then I, I spent a lot of time trying to think of alternatives. And ultimately, uh, I, I had an idea there, but I set it to the side because it was a side idea. And it was only later at New York Tech that uh, I showed the idea to Jim Clark and uh, he implemented it. And he and I wrote a paper on subdivision surfaces. And now, years later, the subdivision surfaces have completely displaced every other technique in animation and in the special effects industry. So three of us just got an Academy Award beginning of this year. Congratulations. Because of that work. But the work came out of this whole side project while I was a graduate student at Utah. So it just took 46 years to go from idea to uh, it you know, displacing everything else. So I was going to say, in regard to the hand, I just wanted to take something hard to make, an Im to, to make an image of it. And so I made a model of my hand. I uh, drew polygons on the model. I digitized the model. And all this was very difficult because there were no tools for it at the time. And another, there was another graduate student who did his wife's face, his Fred Park, and uh, he was working on photographic techniques to do it. So these are these really early days. And I came up with a little animation system for moving the hand. But in fact, my very first project was uh, having a face which turned into a bath that flew away. Now that's just, it's just a little 16 millimeter clip that I've got somewhere. I need to find it because I have to make sure it goes into the 
Pixar archives for historical reasons. But the, excuse me, the Hannah one, the one that I did, and then I forget exactly what the timing was. Uh, Fred Park did one of his wife's face, and then we put them together and, and showed them at the computer, the ACM conference. Uh, this is before there was a cigarette. Now, the interesting thing about it, uh, there's, there's a coincidental element to this, but it's still rather amazing. The hand had an impact when it came out. The number of, well, I, I should say one thing is, in, or in the history of regular animation, this hand-drawn animation, the piece that had a milestone effect at the time was Gertie the Dinosaur, this um, amazing artist. The length and time between Gertie the Dinosaur and Snow White was the same number of years in time between the hand film and Toy Story. And uh, actually, somebody else had pointed that out. They were saying, I realized that, you know, that this time that it takes between when you, you demonstrate the feasibility of something and then you put all of the tools uh, and the infrastructure behind it to make it a reality. At, at, in both those times, you know, it was a time of new technology. Building the infrastructure took a long time. I, I think today there are so many places uh, uh, and fields that people are attuned to it. The length of time between demonstrating something and getting out there is in general shorter. But there are certainly things that are being worked on now in the research world now where uh, you look at them and say, okay, we're, we're talking 10 to 20 years to have the impact. Only some places are willing to invest that amount of time to have the impact. And in general, of course, universities are more likely to do that because I mean, that's their job is to develop and push the technology uh, more than companies, although companies frequently work with them because they're mechanisms for getting the ideas out into the world. Future World as a movie was really bad. <laughs> so the, the first use of computer graphics in a movie was in something which is so horrible that nobody would remember it. Well, there you go, but it's a flattering thing, right? That's the reason why the film's remembered. So, you know, it's a handy thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, you then went to work for a, a guy by the name of Alexander Shaw um, in New York. And it was interesting when I was reading your book because I actually remember Tubby the Tuba, the cartoon. I watched it as a child. Um, you watched it? Yeah, I've seen Tubby the Tuba. Yeah, I watched it several times. It was on circulation in the UK all the time. Yeah, yeah, I've seen Tubby the Tuba. Oh, I mean, the truth is I've never met anybody who said they saw yep, it. Yep, 100%. I remember the thing that I vividly have in my memory is the bit at the end, like the concert scene. I have to rewatch it, but that's the bit that I remember. Yeah. I remember Tubby the Tuba. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So what's, what would you say from that period when you were in New York, what were the key things that came out of that, which then contributed to what followed at LucasArts? Well, um, the, the, the original idea was Alex Shore believed that the computers were going to change animation. And initially his notion was to do uh, hand-on animation, but use the computer to help. And his first artists were actually retired artists who'd done stuff in New York. And actually they weren't very good animators to tell the truth. And then there were some younger people who were trying to learn how to do it. Uh, but Alex thought that computer was going to replace the artist and he told the artist. So you can imagine that probably wasn't the best way to establish a good working relationship. And, but we knew it wasn't true. And we actually had a, we did have a good relationship with the artists, but there was a sort of sort of fundamental uh, disconnect on this. So uh, we were in a, a place where here was somebody who wanted to make it happen. He was funding it, but at the same time, he didn't have the, even the ability to understand what the most important thing, which was had to make a good story or to look for people who were going to do that. So we, we knew that at the time and that, we could both be thankful that he was funding this and allowing it to happen, but at the same time recognize we weren't going to hit the long-term goal. So it's an odd position to be in. Um, my view at, at the time, which I still have, is that we published everything. And the reason for it, which has continued at Utah and then at Pixar, was I actually didn't care so much about the particular idea the reason we published is we wanted to attract the best people. And Alex never questioned that. And when he went to the Lucasfilm, George didn't either. And so here's the thing that would surprise some people is Steve never questioned my decision to have everything published. 
And within Apple, or even within the next meeting there, and then we went back to Apple, it's, it's well known that he was very secretive. But as far as he was concerned, we were in a different place. So he didn't take something which is important in one field and apply it across the others. He just let me do it the way I wanted to. And the result was we really did bring in the best people in the field. So Alex, uh, you know, funded this as it got going. We also had somebody working digital audio. But at uh, one point after the success of Star Wars, then George realized that one of the things that made it stand out was he had a remarkable group of technical people. And uh, there were two parts to their technology, which, and he understood the importance of them. One of them was they had, and it probably, there isn't anything like it now, but these were incredible experts in both the optics and filmmaking in order to go through multiple stage processes of film in order to hold motion blur. And so their expertise was unparalleled. And the second thing was, the, the one thing Star Wars had that was brand new was that they had the little models under computer control. And uh, there's a physiological reason for this, that motion blur when something moves is extremely important uh, because of the way that the film's projected. Um, and Star Wars is the first one to have it. So you didn't have this almost like jittery effect or doubled up edge effect that you saw with uh, Harryhausen films, for instance. So <clears throat> knowing that technology had made a difference for him, even if he didn't understand the technology, led George to think he wanted to bring more technology into the field. So George is unique in this because the rest of the other studios and the filmmakers not only were not interested, for them it wasn't relevant. So there was just zero interest in it anywhere else. So George really stood out on this. And so he started a search. And uh, in the search for somebody to bring in technology, he, he had a, a guy going around. It turns out it was the guy who was running the, the building project for George. But it's a small field. The, everybody, because of we all knew each other. And we knew where the labs were and, and who the leaders were of the different labs. And we were like intellectual competitors on the filmmaking side. So there, there was no business as we weren't close to being able to make a film, but there were people who, others who wanted to do it. So this person went out and ultimately he went to uh, Carnegie Mellon and Carnegie Mellon, uh, a, a person, I think his name is Roz Reddy, pointed him to Ralph Guggenheim, who uh, worked for me at New York Tech, and he was working on making commercials. And Ralph sent them to me. So uh, they, we, we had a good talk. I think the guy's name was Bob Ginby, who was doing the search. And then they sent out one of the, uh, uh, the, the leaders of the, uh, their uh, special effects to uh, New York Tech to check us out. And uh, so we had a, a, a great visit. Then I was brought out to California. But one of the things they asked everybody that they were interviewing was, who else should they talk to? And the other people, because this is such a coveted job, as you might imagine, they basically didn't give any other names out because they wanted the job. And they asked me the question, and uh, I named every other person that they were talking to. So they gave me the job because I had the confidence to give out all the other names. Yeah, and you, you know, the way you frame it in your book, which is very nice, is about the lesson in being secure versus insecure and how you carried that on with you as well. I thought that was very interesting. The fact that you were willing to do that was kind of the tipping point that kind of got you the role in a way. That's, that's pretty awesome. It's pretty good. Well, it was a great time. And, and so that the first month when I went there, um, I, George was off uh, in England working on uh, The Empire Strikes Back. So I was actually using his office for the first month while we were beginning to get other things set up. And uh, I wasn't actually allowed to hire anybody until sometime after Empire Strikes Back because, uh, as you know, it ends with a cliffhanger. And they didn't know whether or not it would do well. And while Star Wars had, had done extraordinarily well, the question is, would it continue on to a sequel? So they had to wait to find out if financially it was going to do well before they would let me proceed. Uh, and I should say... I, my own view is, in the, the history of cinema, that Star Wars was the most uh, impactful film ever made. So you can go back to the early days, and I could they were impactful films, but the one that moved more things, including the science fiction field, 
It was with Star Wars. Because it changed both the front end and the back end, by the sounds of it. That's right, ways. it changed everything. Yep. And what would you say your relationship, if you were to juxtapose your relationship with George Lucas to Steve Jobs, how would you, I mean, obviously they're going to be very different, but how would you say, you know, those relationships differed to one another in terms of how you interacted? Well, George is a, a, a definitely a more quiet person. He, uh, he's definitely a risk taker. And so he gave the goal, but you know, having given the goal, then he pulled back to his filmmaking. And, and uh, so, again, I was pretty much left with a free hand. And um, the things that uh, George is most interested in were the, uh, the digital audio, the video editing, and compositing. So the 3D part of it actually came from me and from uh, um, uh, Alder A. Smith. So we were the first two ones there. And so that was what brought in. And we also needed to build some hardware for the compositing but and for other things. And so that then led towards bringing other people like Tom Porter to um, work on uh, compositing and painting and then ultimately towards uh, building hardware as this group grew. In addition, uh, I, when I left New York Tech, I realized that some of my theories about management weren't, weren't correct. So going to Lucasfilm uh, meant that in some respects, I, it was like a do-over. I could take the things I thought were correct from New York Tech and from Utah, and but change the way I organized. So at Lucasfilm, there was a clear delineation of who the the leaders were over the projects. We brought in Andy Moore over digital audio. Uh, Ralph Guggenheim was put over video editing, and Aldi was over the computer graphics group. And uh, so again, because we published, and also because it was Lucasfilm, we had the funding. Uh, again, it was another really remarkable, remarkable group of people coming together with a, a goal, the goal to change the film industry. Which, you know, the Pixar image computer is what came out of that period, isn't it? Yes, that is right. So uh, it, its original goal was to allow compositing, which means, which meant that we need to have enough compute power and enough memory to be able to perform those functions. And at that time, the computers just weren't nearly fast enough. So we had other people, Rodney Stock leading this, to design a new kind of computer, which then became the picture image computer, and which, which then became the basis for the, when he built Pixar. And we knew at the time that we were a long ways away from having enough compute power to uh, make a film. We also, because we were trying to uh, have pictures good enough, that's when we started the project, which ultimately became RenderMan. But we started thinking about a render that could handle a complexity that was far, far greater than, uh, like a thousand times greater than what was available at state of the art at the time. And by picking such an ambitious goal, we forced ourselves to think about things in a very different way. I think the really interesting thing that certainly came out of Creativity Inc. is there may be this mis misconception with, a, with the public that, you know, Pixar was, it just came out of nowhere, but it was a really hard slog for you guys. And I find the really interesting thing about the Pixar image computer is it shows that you weren't just looking at films at the time, you were also, the medical industry in, was interested in other industries as well, right, in the hardware that you'd created. Yes, once we uh, had it going, uh, then various people in programming it uh, were pushing off in different directions. Uh, one of them was that one of the designers who was from England, um, just trying a blank on his name, but he didn't go home for the holidays. He instead stayed there at Lucasfilm and he wrote a paint program uh, on the image computer. And then the Knowles brothers, uh, and John Knowles, who is uh, still at Lucasfilm, uh, incredibly nice and gracious guy, but he and his uh, brother saw it and they thought, well, that's really cool, but we need something which we can use on a smaller computer. So they wrote a paint program on a uh, Mac. And at that time, uh, I and the others there would have thought the Mac was way underpowered to do anything that was reasonable. But that program that they wrote 
uh, was then the foundation that ultimately led to become uh, Adobe Photoshop. And uh, but that was what what seeded it was that paint program that was written there. Uh, and then somebody, I think it may have been Bob Drevin, who currently is at Apple, had the idea of doing something with volume imaging, got some data from one of the medical companies. That led us to being introduced to Elliot Fishman, who's a professor of radiology at Johns Hopkins. He's still there. He's one of the best radiologists in the world. And he's still this incredibly smart and open person who now is one of the people that's driving and pushing on using deep learning in medicine. Well, our introduction you know, came at that time through this Pixar image computer. And uh, Elliot later was, uh, there's something that he did, it's a different story that actually uh, saved Steve Jobs' life at one point. So there are these, you know, these interesting matches that came. And one of the reasons they came is because when you do something that's at the edge, then people are looking at it, and then they're thinking how it might affect what they're doing or how they might use it. So you end up meeting people and stimulating something just by being at the cutting edge. And just, you know, because the, the thing I find really interesting, because I'm, as I said, as, as we're talking, I'm actually halfway through your book at the moment, is you're very candid about Steve Jobs. There's no sort of um, sugarcoating anything. You're talking about the person that you knew. And the one question that I've always wanted to ask, you know, someone like yourself in particular is, you know, when you look at other people at that period of time in terms of the personal computing market, you've got Steve Jobs, you've got Jack Tramiel, even Bill Gates. Do you think that that extreme kind of personality type, because they all seem to have like an intensity to them, is the thing that helped build a personal computing market? I know that's slightly a little bit off topic, but I think it's relevant to ask. I, okay, I don't quite understand the question. Can you rephrase it? When he was in the room, he would command the room type thing, you know, and it seemed as though other people like Jack Tramiel were at Commodore and then Atari and, you know, even Bill Gates, they all seemed to have that quality of there was an intensity there of like they were so focused that moving things forward their way was the way that needed to kind of happen. Oh, I, absolutely. The, the, uh, if you think about it, you know, like when Steve left Apple, then there began to be a business mindset. I mean, we have a business, we have to do this, we have to be responsible adults in the room. And you've got this, and you always have this in various places where you need the, the adult in the room, but you also need the intensity of the person that's going to be at the edges pushing hard. If you let it swing too far to, we're just at the edges, then you can have chaos. But the more common case is you swing towards the adults in the room who keep the kids out. And, and I've always felt that we're actually... You know, you have to have both around. And, and, and a picture, even to this day, is you want to make sure that you've got some people around who do things that are a little on the outrageous side. And by outrageous, I said, well, it's, it's, never, it's never cool or okay to hurt somebody. But there's some people who do just weird things. And it's not that you kind of everybody do that. But when you have somebody who does something at the edges, then it's a signal to everybody that it's okay to push around the edges and try something different. And uh, in those early days, you know, people like Bill and, uh, and Steve were the, the ones who would push on the edges. And they were all smart as whips. And while I was not a Microsoft fan in this era, I have to say that when... Netscape came out with their browser that I was stunned that Microsoft, which was by that point was a slow moving company, responded at Bill's push very quickly to what he understood correctly as an existential threat to them. And uh, it was one of the holy cow, he is capable of really responding quickly when it's important. And, and likewise, Steve, there's something which I don't think people fully understood about Steve is while he was this, this force in the room and in his uh, younger years, uh, he wasn't very empathetic. He was so smart. He was learning along the way, but he also wanted people to push back. There's part of his intelligence was he knew that he was overpowering. So if there was a yes person there, then he actually found it them not to be useful. <laughs> at all. And I saw this with the Pixar Board of Directors. 
there are a couple of people on the board of directors that Steve removed because they didn't push back. And the people who challenged him in those board of directors meetings were the ones that he valued because most people would kind of wilt under his intensity. But the other thing about Steve, and this, this is an important one, is that during his early years, then the stuff that was over the top with him was what makes for interesting story. You know, the fact that he was the bad boy in, in, in the way he treated people. So people want to talk about that story. But what they don't realize is that the thief's real story is the hero's journey. So uh, and, and the reason I try to make the point of this is because the one story is kind of sexy. So you can make movies about it or write about it that it misses the actual story of the hero's journey, which was that he was this impactful person, but he was cast out of his kingdom. And then he wandered around learning lessons, both with Pixar and with Next, and having some pretty colossal failures along the way. But along the way, learning from those failures changed him. So he became more empathetic. He paid attention to other people. He took the time to think about the dynamics to check in with people, which is not something that he did early on. And once he changed, the people are with him, stayed with him for the rest of his life. So they, uh, they weren't going to talk about him because he was still alive. So uh, after he died, all the stories came out and so forth. They focused on the other stories, which were important, like that the story of Microsoft and Apple was a fundamental and important story in the development of computer science. But it was only an element of Steve. Steve came back a different person. And it was that different person who made the great apple. And that's the thing that was missing in the story. People think, well, that person they read about, Steve, is the one that made the great apple. Yep. That, that's the wrong conclusion to draw. It was that person who had the intensity and the intelligence but learned these other human skills um, that could then take his incredible intensity, which he had all the way through his life, into something which made a major impact in the world. The Remotely Interested podcast is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, YouTube, and Facebook, not to mention many more as new platforms get created. Like us at our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash remotely dot interested. Follow us on Twitter at that interested. And also feel free to reach out to us either on Twitter or via email contact at remotely interested.com. Wow, Adam, I can't believe that interview. That's so fantastic. And, you know, I can't wait for the second part because we're going to be discovering a lot more and covering more subjects. Let's just talk about Ed and how he kind of started off because it's amazing this story of kind of technology developing within the animation world. Yeah, I think the really interesting thing to come out of this one and also reading his book uh, alongside when I was actually interviewing him and then finishing it up after we'd done the interview is there's this idea, in my, in my opinion anyway, of you think about when he was growing up, right? In terms of America, it was post-depression, post-war, like he said. You know, his parents were young people with a family, but they'd seen a lot in life. You know, things that most people yeah. don't see until towards the end of their life. And then you look at the other external forces going on, like things like Sputnik and the Cold War and the way in which that fueled technology development in the US and also, you know, how that impacted uh, outer forces in other countries. But then you've got Ed the emergence of television and Walt Disney at the same time and this love for both science and animation, right? It, it, it's amazing how the kind of, you know, the war and uh, stuff like the arms race and the uh, space race will actually fuel technology, which can later on be used for telling amazing stories, you know? Well, it just goes to show how interconnected things can be, but how we maybe take that for granted or don't realise it. And I think the other thing is as well with, there's a couple of parallels, I think, to this one in the sense that obviously you've got Walt Disney who was seen as an innovator and Ed talks about this in his book, an innovator which innovation in Disney kind of died with him when he died, 
in one respect. And that's reflected until you get to things like The Little Mermaid and other films like that, which we talk about in the next interview, by the way. But then from there, you also have this idea that was sent out to people like Ed and John Lasseter's kids that stuck. And then it kind of comes full circle in the sense that the the stuff that Disney created and that spark of innovation that he has is fueled in these people and then it comes back into the organization. You know, that's kind of, it's quirky, but it's also really interesting how an idea or a concept can be a powerful thing that germinates in people in a different way, you know? Yeah, because like, if you look at Tex Avery and stuff and some of the really like start of animation and uh, color cartoons, you know, it was a set of styles that the artists and the drawers would have to stick to like especially with disney you know he'd have a mouth is drawn in a certain way a hands animated in this way and i guess they stuck to that all the way till stuff like little mermaid so it's a really long period where they had those kind of classic disney um styles of emotion in the characters and uh, i think actually like the biggest change that i saw when i was younger was um industrial light and magic and seeing the uh, star wars films and the absolutely amazing graphics on there that nobody else could recreate in the world and you know later on we look at it now and they say stuff like oh we used match heads as some other guys in the audience and stuff it's absolutely amazing but that i found that was a real change in a uh, approach to graphics well it's that's an interesting point because i think the key thing there is it's all about being resourceful and thinking about what the applied problem is right and again this comes up in ed's book creativity inc in the sense that the one thing that he's very clear on all the way through that pixar is about the storytelling and it's about having the technology as an enabling force not as something that rules the story Uh, Another thing that comes in there, tying it back to the comments you were saying about Disney, is he describes after the acquisition of Pixar, how they went into Disney Animation Studios and implemented, you know, the sociological structure that they pioneered at Pixar and actually helped Disney Animation Studios adopt part of it, you know, not basically assimilate this is the Pixar way but this is how we are constantly sharpening the sword to make sure that we tell the best story possible and there's actually an instance in that book where unfortunately I can't remember the name of the person that he's talking about but the Disney employee that he spoke to about it years later after because he was split between his career once acquisition happened was split between Burbank and Emeryville so Pixar and Disney Pixar's in Emeryville Disney's in Burbank um He was sitting down and he was talking with this person and years later he said to them, well, what was actually going through your head when Pixar was acquired by Disney and, you know, Cloud 7, which you headed, which was the rival to Pixar, it was intended to be the part of Disney that when they were licensing from Pixar, they had the right to do any uh, film, but sequel, essentially. Toy Story 3 was originally yeah. going to be a Cloud 7 thing. And part of the acquisition deal that Steve Jobs wrote in was, this needs to be shut down and we need complete con- creative control over our own stories, right? And the guy turned around and said to him, when Pixar got acquired by Disney, my first thought was, I can finally make the films that I want to make. That was it, because Disney, they were they were doing success successfully well with stuff like Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, The Lion King. Uh, but that was all very traditionally drawn, wasn't it? And and then there was this kind of feeling that, you know, um, something's going to come, something's going to change, or a Disney going to be on the back foot as this new 3D stuff comes out. I personally remember seeing the first Pixar animation, I'm sure the one that everybody remembers, which was the little lamp with the Pixar logo and the amount of emotion that they'd managed to put in that little lamp. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the the anthropomorphic sort of human element to it as well, that, again, it's about that telling the story. Um, And I think that's the key thing to remember with Pixar. And I think the really interesting thing to come out of this one and to also come out of Ed's book is the fact that the Pixar story was not an easy one right? They didn't just Mm. go from being this startup to having this, you know, this is great. This is a massively important thing. They struggled for a long period of time before 
they found their application, which was as a film studio. Prior to that, they were set up as improving film effects. So Pixar was actually a computer. You know, they were working with the medical industry and other applications to, you know, try and pioneer some computer graphics stuff at a time when, as I said before, you know, GPUs and stuff like that were not common. And it's really interesting that Ed kind of says, like, the first stuff that he watched was Pinocchio and that really changed him when he was a kid and he kind of focused on that for 45 years. That was, like, his his project to kind of stick to the same guns. You know, he still wanted the cutesy kind of characters and it actually had to get to the point for technology to catch up to him to him to actually be able to do that but by holding out and having that kind of focus people let him work in that way yeah and i think that's another key thing to bring up here is the fact that you had enough people that were independently wealthy enough and the timing was right to keep fueling the machine for as long as it needed to happen before it could blossom into what it had the potential to become. And I would also say as well, you know, on the jobs front, you had somebody there that got it and was willing to push for it, but at the same time was also going through a series of personal changes that would ultimately make him the person that he needed to be to go back to something like Apple and make it the company that it needed to be. Yeah. Yeah, and there's that uh, Xerox Park connection as well. It was always seen as a place that Steve Jobs kind of walked into and stole all of the ideas from. But, you know, they they were on the table anyway. I think they'd actually been rejected by Xerox themselves, which uh, was a really bad move because they'd invented stuff like the GUI, um, you know, the desktop, laser printing, Ethernet, you know, (laughs) a hell of a lot of things. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing about that is is sometimes the end application is the thing that gives something meaning, right? And that's something that he was able to do. He realized who the end user was and how it could benefit them. So I think that, you know, that's the thing. It's sort of taking something from a concept to a product. There's a journey there, right? It isn't just an A and B process. There's this massive, well, a book that I'm not really a great fan of, but they call it Crossing the Chasm right? So there's this gap in between that you have to cross in order to get there. Yeah. And I just think it's uh, amazing that kind of his timing, like you said, you know, if if he wasn't born in this time period, that technology wouldn't have been in the hands of the public, you know, and maybe he would have done something else amazing. But uh, it just seems like absolutely perfect timing working in all these different industries, even Pixar with Steve Jobs coming in just at that time, leaving Apple, and then eventually kind of doing what ed did as well and coming back to apple with all this new innovation ed coming back to disney yeah well i mean you know you think about it if we're to look at it from an overview point of view you got the fact that he grew up in utah you've got the university of utah as a node within the arpa darpa system right in the early days yeah which was the military kind of um internet originally yeah wasn't it? you've got obviously sputnik that basically fueled that then you've got the the sociological thing of people like Evans and Sutherland creating an environment whereby they could just attract all of this talent. And then you send that talent out, out into the world, right? And then from there, you have somebody that headhunts you to go to a place whereby they want to use computers for animation at a time when that isn't even thought of. And then something like Star Wars hits. And then that then creates yeah. the next chain reaction, which takes Ed from New York to the Silicon Valley area, Stroke Bay area. And then from there, you have someone like Jobs who's willing to take a bet on that. You know, it's just a series of things whereby timing is so key, you know, in so many different ways. Yeah. And so much risk as well. So much risk from, you know, George Lucas risking making star wars you know is it going to be successful to steve jobs leaving apple taking that risk you know it's all connected with risk and uh kind of just getting out there yeah and i also think you know that idea of risk and reward the reward here isn't basically like we're going to do this because we're gonna make money we're doing this because we know it's something that needs to be done and it's something that we're passionate about 
Yeah. I think the term passion it's, is used a lot, but I think here it's very well applied. Well, we'd love to hear your thoughts and comments about this week's episode. So please leave them on YouTube or just tweeters or any of our social media. And can you tell us what's going to be happening in the second part, Adam? I can indeed. So basically, we are going to be going more into the Pixar side of things. And also as well, because Ed just knows so many people that I, you know, I just can't explain how important these people are in a in a very sort of like general way in everyday life we are also going to be talking about some of the people that he grew up around professionally and both knows them personally and get his perspective on them as well so the, the next episode is going to be as good as this one and it was totally unexpected there wasn't intended to be a part two but he gave me so much of his time which was genuinely amazing and i am incredibly humbled by that i was like yep we're going to turn this into a two-parter so yeah i i was amazed about how honest he was and how frank he was you know when you asked about steve jobs and his his response to that was just amazing yeah and again i think you know before we roll out with this one and start looking towards part two anybody that's interested in building organizations or the history of technology or anything else i would fully recommend ed's book creativity inc because you know i've read a lot of these uh what i what i've come to call since moving to the us the the canon of silicon valley of all these books that are talking about management and stuff like that and ed's book he even says it in there i've read a lot of these books and they just they didn't do anything for me there was no useful content in there Ed's book is very, very good, and it stays with you. You Basically, you read it, and you do take away stuff from it. So I fully recommend Creativity Inc. for anybody that's interested in a journeyman's tale of an incredible life. So if you guys could share the episode as much as possible with everyone, get them to know about this new podcast, and also check the notes, because we've got some excellent video footage of some of those really early 3D animations. We do indeed. We've got Ed's Hand, which was in Future World, and we'll also basically link to Gertie the Dinosaur as well. So the show notes for this one, if you don't check them out, you're going to miss out because he's just done so much that we can cram it all in there. So thanks so much for listening and see you guys next Indeed. month. Until next time, see you soon.